This is the London FinTech Podcast, brought to you by your host, Mike Ballaman, bridging the worlds of suits and t-shirts, of finance and technology, bringing you insights, stories, and inspiration from the golden age of opportunity and innovation happening in London right now. Hi, this is Mike Ballaman. This is the London FinTech Podcast, episode 218. Brought to you in association with Smart and theenlistedboard.com. And I'm delighted to be joined today by Harj Gill, Group General Counsel at the Live Group, LIIV, who are particularly active in the SaaS field with investments in the creative arts, advertising and media industries. However, we will hear more about them later. For the moment, we are focusing much more on yet another fresh topic that we haven't covered so far. What is the role of what is sometimes called a CLO, a chief legal officer, or a general counsel in a tech firm in general, looking at tech as a superset of fintech? Back in the day, well, quite a few days ago, most all companies used external lawyers almost entirely. At a certain point, the concept of an in-house lawyer appeared. Since then, the number of laws has only mushroomed and the whole world of regulation has exploded massively. So, to cut a long story short, and at risk of being corrected by Hodge, I imagine that there is an ever-expanding need to square the circle. Where the circle is the organic desires of the business's creativity to do things, and the square is the zillion and one rules that must be obeyed at all times, or if you like, Lilliputians and their zillion threads tying Gulliver down. It is perhaps this need to square this circle more than anything else which has driven the evolution of the in-house lawyer into not just somebody who deals with the outhouse lawyers, but becoming a CLO slash general counsel so as to get the optimal outcome, needing to have both a deep understanding of specific businesses with its idiosyncrasies and desires, as well as how the law regulatory thing kind of works. So in this episode, we shall dive into the world of a CLO and we'll leave you all with some feel for what type of company at what stage should start considering creating yet another box on the organogram, yet another chair around the C-suite table. Many of you companies will not, many of you should, and those in the middle might want to think about it. But first, let's find out what the it is. Plenty to talk about, so let's get on with the show. Good morning, Harj. Thank you for joining me on the show today. Hi, Mike. Pleasure to be here. Yes, although your pleasure is probably somewhat muted by when we got on this call, me ranting without hesitation, repetition of deviation for about sort of 45 minutes <laughs> on the, on the woes, of, uh, woes of the tech world. And in particular, my woes of the tech world, as we record this, I'm about to go off on holiday for quite a little while and I'm busy finalizing roughly everything and doing podcasts right at the end. And uh, people with computers will know this thing called updating and improving. And yesterday, my computer that I've used for the last, whatever, five years, updated and improved itself and uh, improved itself into a brick so it does absolutely nothing whatsoever i've got about two dead tablets they don't work either couldn't find my old computer i couldn't find the power supply i've got a laptop which runs windows xp but then that won't connect to the internet because the internet doesn't like old people or old laptops or something like that so yes i'm absolutely uh, 
uh, absolutely stuffed. But anyway, you've you've heard that once before, actually. So <laughs> you don't want to hear it all all again. This is all coming as a surprise to me, Mike. I had no idea you're having these challenges this morning. Oh, you see, there we go. That, that's a, that's a slipperiness of a lawyer already. I can I can hear the sort of uh, <laughs> the, the fees running up per minute. But uh, no, tech is absolutely dreadful. Absolutely dreadful. And you know, I could go to Curry's today and buy another PC for six hundred quid and some bloody update from Windows next week could absolutely brick it again. So, uh, yes, anyway, I don't believe in technology. I'm going to give up. I'm going to live on a desert island. I'm never going to come back from Hawley. Anyway, that's my rant. <laughs> that's my rant. <laughs> great start to a Friday morning for you, Mike. Yes, exactly. And a great start to a, a tech podcast for all of techophiles. But anyway, um, on uh, more interesting matters, you were telling me that you were a Formula One person. I used to be a Formula One person until it sort of got a bit boring, actually, although back in the day, talking about back in the day, it was a bit too exciting and, and, and cars and people caught fire in races and died and stuff like that. So I, I moved on to MotoGP. Well, we do have some fires and the odd person dies. But uh, anyway, so you have quite a deep interest in Formula One, you were saying. Very much so. I mean, I've been a fan of probably for about 15 years and, um, you know, the sport has evolved hugely. And no thanks to things like uh, Netflix series, what have you, it's almost become quite a mainstream sport, which kind of has its advantages and disadvantages. And, um, but I think, you know, just the technique, pushing the technology, um, kind of bearing in mind things like, you know, carbon neutrality and things like that. There's a, there's a lot of commercial elements in there, but I think as a sport to watch and actually trying to do, I invested in a uh, racing simulator during the lockdown to keep myself out of trouble. It is a hugely, hugely difficult um, sport. And those that take the view that it isn't a sport, I would say try and do four or five laps and see how your arms and your neck feel after a few laps. And, you know, interestingly, like football, if you miss the ball or whatever, not too much happens. If you miss a corner or an apex, well, you know, it can be a, a hell of a lot more serious. But uh, yeah, very, very sharp, um, very much uh, an appreciation for anybody that can actually do it. It's um, it's immensely difficult, but also fun to watch. And I assume there's a spectrum of racing simulators from a sort of USB steering wheel, which you might give a nephew aged five or something, and he plugs it into his computer, to the kind of full-blown, I don't know, Boeing 747 thing where pilots sit in there and fly around the world. So where, where are you on that spectrum? On a scale of one to ten, ten probably being uh, the most sophisticated, I'm probably at about a four, five. Interestingly, our office in New York, we have probably something that sits at the eight on the spectrum, which is hydraulics and all sorts. And so, wow, yeah, wow. So you, you actually have something you sit in and has pedals, then? Correct. Ah, wow, that's quite uh, that's quite cool. Maybe I should get one of those from for MotoGP, which is you might I'm be following. in trouble when you need updates, though. So I probably would. <laughs> yes, you, well, it crashed. Yes, oh, very good. I see what you did there. I mean, just in, on, on the tech thing, and you mentioned the changing world, I think one thing that's impressed me a lot, and MotoGP has a bit of a tendency to regard itself as a poor cousin, subconsciously regard itself as a poor cousin of Formula One, but it doesn't really matter what you're racing around a track. It's absolutely phenomenal how the number of data engineers has exploded over the past 20 years. You know, it's not just finance or legals or whatever, everything's sort of exploding in, in complexity. And even in MotoGP, you might have a dozen or so people just sitting there looking at data because to get the hundredth of a second that you really want, you really need to be absolutely optimising everything. And optimising everything means collecting more data and understanding the data and, and all that. Data-driven decision-making. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Right. Okay. And actually thinking about business and, and entrepreneurs, I did recently meet a, an entrepreneur, not in the fintech sector, who had had a good realisation and went off to learn 
for some time, quite some time, how to drive a Formula One car at Monza, which was a real thing. And of course, as you know, there's a real challenge, which is that they're absolutely undrivable unless the tyres are nice and warm and sticky. But you've got to, got to go fast to make the tyres warm and sticky. So there's that perversity. You have to drive faster in order to get the car into the right spot, which is actually quite scary. But the slower you drive, the more at danger you could possibly be for all of the reasons you just mentioned. Yes. And this chap had, he said one of the most amazing things was he, he had a, a Ferrari 360, which he said it was good back in the day before speed cameras, but now it's pretty unusable. He was driven around Monza in his 360. And he said that they were going down whatever straight it was, main straight perhaps, at, I don't know, I'd say 200 miles an hour for the sake of argument you know, into kind of a, like a dead end and a 90 degree turn. And he said the, the, the guy was just driving. He, he literally thought, oh, we're going to die. He had his arms straight ahead. And as the turn approaches, the Italian guy who's showing him how to really drive a car just turned both his arms 90 degrees to one side. And he said the car stuck to the thing. We went around the bend. You know, it's what, he said it was the most remarkable thing of his life. Yeah, that's actually the, the first corner at Monza. sounds like the right hander. It's, it's, it's um, yeah, flat out and then hard on the brakes. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, especially when you've got your own car and you think you kind of know what it does. I mean, at a, at a smaller level of all, decades ago, I went and tried the Nigel Mansell racing course at, um, at Browns Hatch, where they, you know, take you around in a, I don't know, Volkswagen GTI or something like that first to, to show you how to drive, because you think you know to drive, and of course you don't know how to drive, and they, they show you about driving. And then after they've done that a little bit, they put you in a little, little sort of monocoque, and they, they send you off, and your bum's about two inches off the ground, and, you know, Wow, that was it was pretty pretty amazing experience actually. I, I really recommend that kind of thing to anybody who hasn't tried it, who has an interest. Anyway, so moving on from the relatively dull world of Formula One racing, Monza and Ferraris, to the far more exciting world of uh, uh, being a lawyer. So, how has your career journey brought you here today, Hodge? It's been a, an interesting journey. Um, I would say that very early on. I knew that I wanted to be a corporate transactional lawyer and um, I trained at a very good um, technology, media and telecoms focus firm in London and um, I joined a West Coast US firm on qualification um, as a corporate associate and focused very much on corporate transactions, so venture capital, mergers and acquisitions and listing exclusively for technology businesses. And that was a, a great experience. And then looming large on the horizon was the financial crash in 2008. And um, that resulted actually in our firm actually going under and been around for over 100 years. And um, technology corporate lawyers at that stage um, were not in demand. And so over time, I kind of pivoted into consultancy roles and work more on commercial technology transactions, particularly in software for US and UK listed companies, and then saw the emergence of SaaS kind of around, you know, well, I became cognizant of it in around 2014, 15, and then, you know, found it quite interesting and saw it as a growth market and kind of became a subject matter expert in that area. And so did that for a few years and then picked up the New York bar along the way as a qualification because I spent a lot of time working for US-centric businesses and then went into a private equity-owned SaaS business and built out their legal function to support their high growth and did that for a little over three years and then eventually moved on to um, an executive-level GC role with the Live Group, to, you know, which is where I'm currently at now. Excellent. Well, all of which makes you the ideal person to talk about the evolution and creation ex nihilo of this role. And as I say, towards the end of the main course, we can 
give a little bit of an idea for those companies for whom it's not relevant in the slightest, for those companies who should have one, and the grey area in the middle and the, and the factors that people might like to consider. But talking about there, about the evolution of the whole field, I mean, roughly what year had you sort of heard of general counsels or CLOs, or, or were they always there because of, sort of your American connections or, or, or putting it in the UK context? When did they start to suddenly appear in London? When did people like yourself walk around the street and everyone else goes, oh, yeah, he's a general counsel, look at him over there. <laughs> it's an interesting one because um, I think that the position has, has existed certainly in the UK for a long time. The CLO position is, is something which is a little bit more recent and I would say has its origins very much in the US. And I think it's the recognition over time that having a C-suite lawyer or general counsel, you know, sometimes the terms are used interchangeably, sometimes a CLO sits above a GC. And so there are kind of variations on how it works. But I think if you look back kind of at the history of kind of how senior lawyers or general counsels kind of came about, I mean, again, in my opinion, it dates back probably just under 100 years um, in the US. And so, you know, it kind of coincided with, you know, huge industries taking off and, you know, new markets emerging. And so I think there was a perceived value in having very business savvy lawyers close to senior management. And so I think that kind of then created a need for navigating new regulations, you know, creating new products and services and things of that nature. So that there's very much a demand for it. But I think it's been cyclical over time as well. And so then you had the emergence of the big law firms. And, you know, I think a lot of the work that may have been handled by these pioneering GCs, you know, slowly start to started to move into these big law firms that, you know, built out their practices over time. So I would say that the growth of GCs, you know, it hasn't been linear in terms of expansion and growth. It's been more cyclical. And particularly in the UK, I think one of my observations and one of the positive observations, I would say in the last five years, certainly has been that you're starting to see more general counsels operating at board level and reporting into CEOs. And I would say that hasn't always been true of the majority of the GCs that have operated in this market. And even now, you're seeing more and more CLO positions being created. So I think we're in a good spot for the role moving forwards. I see. So the origins were uh, some time ago in America. Uh, America loves idiosyncratically having lots of lawyers. And I think I've mentioned on the podcast before, my first experience was in the, in the 80s and I had lunch with the New York Investment Office's lawyer and a couple of other people. And he was busy telling me how things were going to be. And <laughs> me being a sort of a noob over there said, no, 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 I decide how things are going to be, then you make it happen kind of stuff. But there was a bit of a lack of meeting minds. Um, and uh, of course, idiosyncratically over here, we've loved having accountants. Um, we like <laughs> counting all the beans. And idiosyncratically, of course, in, in, in Germany, they've loved having engineers. Although Germany's latest iteration is to see how their engineers will like working without energy whatsoever, which will make them a, a challenge. But I think all three models are coming to the end. I mean, all the the people I know who have been accounting partners for decades, they say accounting's just got ludicrously complex. It's just like just just completely overspecified for what's what's required. Regulation, number of laws. I've never found, no even speaking to city law partners, I've never found anybody who can tell me how many laws I have to obey in this country, for example. I mean, you know, it's just in, insane number of laws. So there's these cultural backgrounds, but then we, 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 we fast forward and then we get to this sort of 
thing that I described only at metaphorical levels in terms of uh, things I would have been able to identify perhaps at the age of four, like a circle and a square, which shows that my understanding hasn't really come very far in quite a while. So moving on from sort of a, a metaphorical level like that, can you give the audience a more specific feel or a bit more sort of case study feel for, as you, as you mentioned SAS, what would a firm without sort of a CLO have challenges with in the sort of SAS world and what would a firm with a CLO have less challenges with and maybe just to explain a little bit about the sort of uh, why SAS is complicated because I heard of SAS at some point in time it was like Swedish air service but with another A in the middle which was confusing <laughs> um, and uh, I thought that oh I see so commercially right you used to flog them a piece of software now they kind of rent it by the hour or rent it by the month you know so um, obviously as a non-legal expert my starting position would be how hard can that be just just turn, change the bloody contract hard from a you know, we flogged it to we're renting at you. But obviously it ain't that simple. It should be simpler, but I think there are um, a number of issues which are kind of symptomatic of kind of people's risks, appetites, um, particularly in the world we live in, that kind of do do flow through to kind of how you manage, um, in particular, licensing SaaS to a sophisticated customer base. And so I think there's two aspects to consider here. I think the first one is understanding, you know, what value a general counsel can bring to a business generally and also what value a general counsel or a legal team can bring to a SaaS business in particular. So I'll address both of those issues if that makes sense. So I think there's been a misconception over time over what the value of a general counsel or a legal department is. And I would say that historically it's focused very much on being a black letter lawyer. What is a black letter lawyer? Reads the law, interprets the law, gives a very straightforward, yes, you can do this, no, you can't do that. And it's a little bit like operating in a vacuum and everyone in the room probably wants to kill you. So I think we have moved away from that. And I think that one of the reasons why we're seeing more value attributed to uh, legal departments is because we're performing a number of other functions in, in addition to doing that staple role. And so... I think, you know, there's probably three really big areas where um, a general counsel or legal department can really demonstrate value to a business. And I think the first one is very important. It's connecting businesses. Legal often work with a broad range of, you know, different stakeholders across different disciplines. And, and if done correctly, the lawyer should understand, you know, departmental objectives, you know, understand their pain points and can facilitate cross-functional collaboration and help them to guide and find solutions and so it's very much being solution driven and then also a good legal department within organization should be a part of the business embedded in the business and so law firms absolutely can add value by advising from afar and there's certain things like M&A for example competition issues where you you know more often than not you need to go externally because smaller organizations don't have that legal skill set but being embedded in a business gives you the opportunity to you know help scale the business for growth you know from a legal perspective that could be anything from you know putting in place processes and technologies that support more efficient and shorter sales uh, cycles it gives you the opportunity, you know, to what we you mentioned earlier, taking very much a data-driven approach to diagnosing, you know, repetitive issues. 
and you know in as much as you can automating as much low level repetitive tasks as you can so you can focus on more strategic things and also enabling the business to self-serve okay so just sort of summarizing the drift of that as you're expanding it clo is there to focus on business outcomes that the business desires being part of the business and reporting into the business and being dependent for his bonus on the business and all that he's very uh, invested he has plenty of skin in the game in the success of the, the business because obviously a good external lawyer will also be focused on the outcome let's take an MA for example however the kind of economic exposure shall we say is different in that it's an, you know another minute another dollar or another fifty dollars whatever you have to charge you know for slaughters and made partners these days and you know generally generally the lawyers say well we did all this work here's the bill kind of stuff and oh yes sorry it didn't work in the end but there you go shrug your shoulders now i'm not saying that lawyers don't care about the outcome but i'm just saying that the sort of the in particular the remuneration aspect means they get paid for doing work it's contracted out by the business um, a good lawyer externally will not be the dead letter black letter lawyer um, but will be a, a creative lawyer However, as he is not deeply embedded in the business and, the, and also the human dynamics as well, once you're at the C-suite, it's much about human dynamics and politics Correct. and relationships and, and all these kind of things. And so, uh, yes, so by understanding both sides of the river, going back to simple children's metaphors, the CLO can bridge these worlds with intimate knowledge. But going back to my point about remuneration, he is 110% aligned with what the, the bloody company is trying to do and make money and make profit. Because going back to you were a part of a company that, didn't succeed in not going bankrupt for more than a century or two. If the business goes bust, you need a new job. So, you know, <laughs> you're, you're in the car, you're in the aeroplane that, that's going to crash. So, yes, very in, in, incentivized. Yes, I get that. Yeah, and I think one of the questions that always gets asked is, you know, well, how does a legal department demonstrate value? And, you know, saying, oh, yes, we turned out 200 agreements over X period <laughs> of time is, is not the right answer. And, there's almost a little bit of a conundrum. I mean, how do you, you know, if you take a traditional risk averse approach, you could take a view that, well, I'm trying to demonstrate value by, you know, showing you I helped you avoid all of this risk that didn't happen. You're trying to prove almost a negative there. And so nobody really wants to hear those conversations because the simple answer a CFO may give you in that scenario is, well, that's what we pay you to do. So, of course, that's, that's you know, BAU for you. And so I think as a legal industry, and I, I think we're becoming certainly more aware of this as, as we evolve our roles, is to try to understand and demonstrate our value in different ways. For example, understand the audience that you're talking to. Demonstrating value to a CFO is going to be different to demonstrating value to a CTO, for example. And so that's where we need to upskill and, you know, don't just take a quantitative approach of how many agreements did you sign or, you know, oh, I avoided this risk for you. So I think you have to, this is where the role has evolved from black letter to bringing in things like technology, process efficiency, and really building those relationships. The value and success of a good CLO or a GC or even a legal department is in the quality of the relationships that you form with the business. So. You've got to think about having and creating these positive touch points and experiences with your department. Help diagnose pain points. Be a part of the collaborative process in you know, dealing with, for example, if it's our sales cycle takes too long, we get too much pushback on X, Y, and Z. You know, really get yourself in there and say, well, you know, what is the risk profile that we're trying to manage? Why are our customers always pushing back on X, Y, and Z? 
there may be a simple solution there. Maybe the risk profile isn't as high as you thought. Maybe there's mitigating steps the business can take to reduce that risk and pass that um, on. So really you're talking about creative business process re-engineering, you know, not just sort of, oh, there's a bunch of laws out there, we'll go to the, go to the nick if we, we, we break too many of them. It's that, as you say, that it's important on the sales cycle. And, I, and when I mentioned the words remuneration and, and politics, I was slightly sticking a cattle prod through the, the, <laughs> through the bars. As I mentioned on the, on the podcast before, there was a conversation that still sticks vividly in my mind, even though it's now about 25 years ago, with uh, Sir David Clementi as he became um, Deputy Governor of the Bank of England, Chairman of the BBC, all this kind of stuff, where I was having the usual annual conversation with the then CEO about uh, bonuses, and uh, he said his stuff, and I said, ah, oh, okay, David, so if I can summarise that, if Climbwatch does well, that's because the businesses did well. Yeah. Because they made all the money. But if it does badly, that's because we did badly, because it's our job to stop it going wrong. And uh, he said, yeah. I said, oh, okay. So which of those two scenarios do I and the department ever get a decent bonus? Because <laughs> <laughs> either it's someone else's, someone else's credit that it's gone right, or it's my fault. <laughs> Uh, he didn't really have an answer for that, but this is very similar across the domains of CRO or Chief Compliance Officer, or what they're called, and, and no doubt the CLO. So people in organisations will be used to that kind of dynamic. Okay, so we've talked about the generality, which I think is always very useful context. And you said before that sort of zooming in on tech or, or SaaS specifically, uh, let's go through tech first and then, then and SaaS as a, a, just a case study or, or an example of the what you've been talking about. Is the something special about the tech world because you were mentioning numbers like years like 2015 and things changing in London and, and stuff like that um, and obviously there's been a whole sort of technology boom tech firms in all uh, sectors uh, not least of which fintech because fin tends to be very data intensive it is just data in a sense there isn't even a motor car it's just, just data so is there something about tech firms per se that means that they're more likely to need a CLO or should more think about it than your average Firm. I mean, what is it about tech? Uh, and then let's take SAS as a study. I think with technology particularly is, you know, it's always been a breeding ground for innovation. And with innovation brings new questions and new challenges. And, you know, let's, for example, take cryptocurrency as an example. There's no, regu you know, regulation is, is catching up with the industry. And so, you know, that's say quite an extreme example of you're looking at a growing field, maybe not growing right now, but um, <laughs> certainly has gone through exponential growth over the last 10 years. And then this is really challenging the regulators because the regulators tend to, into situations like this, tend to have less knowledge of the products and the services in the marketplace than actually the people that created it. So that's an extreme example. If we were to take SaaS as an example, I mean, I, I don't want to over-egg this. I'm not saying it's the most complicated thing in the world because it isn't. But what it has done is it's brought a number of legal issues to the forefront that have been addressed and are constantly being discussed. So a lot of um, SaaS companies, like you said, you're renting. So it's effectively commoditizing um, a, a product or service, you know, it has many benefits for its customers. They don't have to invest in expensive infrastructure and what have you. CFOs love it because it's OPEX and not CAPEX and, you know, things of that nature. But... Depending on what you sell, you may be holding a lot of your customers' data, and that could be personal data. We all know that you know the, the privacy landscape has changed and regulation has increased with GDPR and CCPA uh, in the US, and you know there are further measures following. How companies use personal data 
you know, is under huge scrutiny. Um, you know, in the businesses I've worked, you know, previously and current, you know, more previously, where we've processed quite sensitive personal data, you spend a lot of your time getting security teams, um, the lawyers comfortable with the risk profile. They always want higher limits of liability. They may have a misunderstanding of actually what you do with data. So a lot of it's educating them about what you do, what you hold, how you do it. So that in itself has created a whole new industry in and around security compliance, personal data usage. Most technology companies, obviously not all, have a trajectory for an exit, whether that's an IPO or a trade sale, and particularly with an IPO, you know, going through an IPO, whether it's here or in the US, is an, a, a huge process, which is, you know, riddled with lots of challenges, at least not regulatory compliance and transparency over the information that you um, have to provide your investors. Regulation of financial products and services, product liability. So all of these things kind of create a market unto themselves that need to be addressed and you know the cost of getting it wrong in today's you know social media media age is actually shouldn't be underestimated it doesn't take particularly long for word to get out that you know the company's you know misusing data or there's been a data breach and things of that nature so i would say with sas that is always some of the considerations that you should bear in mind you know particularly as to whether you have a gc or a clo and um kind of stepping back a step further, if you don't have a general counsel that's able to articulate these things directly to a board or a CEO, you may run the risk of having that information distilled through a slightly different lens. So for example, if a GC reports into a CFO, the CFO may deliver a slightly different message to the board and so, you know, this comes down to governance and independence and making sure the business can make informed decisions. That should be a collaborative process across a C-suite and uh, senior management. You know, it's about striking that right level of balance between the different challenges that businesses have to navigate. Yes. And on that point, I'm just thinking about the sort of presentational aspects. As we've touched on the podcast a number of times, risk in general is seen in two ways. And... On a podcast that we had uh, recently, I was slightly taken to task by a guest for having too defensive a focus on the whole due diligence process. Mm -hmm. Um, And he was emphasising, especially in America, especially in private equity. Yes, of course, you, metaphorically speaking, don't need to let in loads of goals. But actually, you're much more interested in how many you're going to score. What's the upside of this business? So there is the threat side of the coin and there is the opportunity side of the coin. And going back to the sort of... uh, nitty-gritties of organograms and reporting through CFOs and and all this kind of stuff that by nature they're focusing on defence, on uh, avoiding threats, avoiding risk. Um, But then going back to what you were saying before about sort of basically helping the businesses um, re-engineer their processes to be more efficient and and more more effective, that's very much on on the opportunity side. I mean, that's that's a creative function. And I can see that with the way the world is going in terms of infinite regulation and infinite laws, it reminds me of Douglas Adams' shoe shop event horizon back in the day. <laughs> shoe shops seem to be proliferating. Laws will, at a certain point, the whole thing's just going to collapse on itself because it'll be a black hole. It's no longer something that you're capable as an organisation, as every organisation, of, of outsourcing without losing some functionality which is quite essential. And, and in particular, I think listening to you has emphasised to me that creative aspect can only really be addressed by somebody that knows all the people and all the businesses and 
you know, he's having lunch with them and coffees and, and, and all this kind of thing. Good. Okay, well, um, I teased the listeners uh, at the beginning with the fact that they would get a little bit of a download and an education, which certainly they've had on this whole CLO, General Counsel world, and the role and why the role is becoming more important to more companies. I teased them with the idea that at the end of the podcast, we might be able to give them, or perhaps you can, because I certainly can't, <laughs> just a very rough idea of, of three categories of listeners' company. Listeners are all around the world in thousands of listeners and thousands of companies perhaps what kind of company uh, shouldn't really be bothering thinking about this what kind of category absolutely should have one already uh, and the kind of gray area in the middle where that it's worth them giving it a thought yeah absolutely and i think that it comes down to there's no formulaic approach it's about assessing the value that an in-house function can bring and i think there's a number of considerations there so for example um, are there any legal or regulatory barriers to entry into your market and your verticals? How mature is your business? Because if you're a startup, um, the reality is having been around a lot of startups, you know, hiring a legal function is not the first thing on the list. And I understand that. And then, you know, as the business begins to mature, what's the cost of non-legal compliance? You know, what's at risk? And sometimes it's hard to quantify that without having some legal um, advice along the way. The other thing to consider is that, you know, how can a legal in-house resource reduce your external spend and also create those types of efficiencies in processes, procedures that we've discussed? And then I think the other consideration is, and it tends to be one in the more mature businesses, is how important is good governance in your organisation and what does good governance look like? So I'd say those are some kind of rudimentary factors to probably consider at an early stage. Excellent. And I think the, the other point from a sort of yin soft perspective rather than a yang uh, hard black and whitey perspective is that the evolution of what the word lawyer means in a business context. Um, name escapes me now, but uh, one of our guests earlier in the year was the in-house lawyer and then he ended up running one of the major businesses uh, as the head of that business because, again, having heard you talk, this whole focus on creativity as well as organisation and, and management is something which means that there is much less clear blue water, should we say, between a CEO and a CLO than there used to be, let's say, 50 years ago, for the sake of argument. I think that's a very interesting point, because one trend that I've started to see in the last few years is I've seen people pivot from general counsel roles into COO roles. And so I think that is very good validation for, the, for all the reasons that we discussed, is that evolution from black letter, process efficiency, embracing technology, data-driven approach, building relationships cross-departmentally. That, if done well, can be a good skill set evolution to move into more business roles, if one is so minded. Excellent. Right. Okay. So before I wrap up the show, I'd like to thank all you listeners out there. I'd particularly like to thank any listeners who are also CLOs or general counsels, uh, councils, and my brand partners for the podcast. Smart is transforming pensions and retirement worldwide. The leading-edge retirement tech platform propelled them to success in the UK. Now they're operating on four continents and working with partners like Zurich and JP Morgan. Find out more at www.smart.co. The EnlistedBoard.com, your guide to entrepreneurial governance and how you can start making your board an engine of growth today. So, Harj, you covered this whole CLO, general counsel thing, uh, very effectively, very clearly and impressively. We glossed over, or rather I glossed over, the LIIV, the Live Group, um, before. So maybe you'd like to tell us, listeners, a little bit more about the 
live group and uh, which them should be checking you out and if anything what you need more of to be even bigger and better in the future sure absolutely so live takes a very active uh, interest in something that we refer to as digital anthropology and you know everyone's familiar with the term of anthropology what digital anthropology focuses on is understanding how people behave in a technological age because it has changed you know people's behaviors i mean if you take dating for example a lot of people today will go online they won't necessarily talk to people out on the street or in a bar etc and that's the change in people's behavior so what we do is across our portfolio companies is try to understand what can help us better understand decision making so you know there's a big data out there and that tends to look at quantitative insights and things of you know how much of something then there's something called thick data which provides more information on things like emotional you know attack you know emotions and context and so digital anthropology helps us to try and answer the why you know quantitative data tells us how much there's value in the insights of knowing why certain things are done certain ways and so Telmar, um, one of our portfolio companies, focuses on helping companies plan their marketing, advertising and media planning by using, you know, third party and proprietary survey data. So they've got insights into kind of where is it best for me to spend my advertising um, budget, you know, in terms of, you know, is it um, Internet advertising? Is it, you know, radio, etc. And then another one of our companies that, that we acquired at the end of 2021 called Elixir is very much around audience intelligence and gaining insight into consumers and markets. And it's kind of using things like more dynamic data from Twitter and fusing it with other data sets. And lastly, Splashlight, um, our very trendy business in New York, um, they create visual content. And so they do a lot of um, image creation and video creation for um, high-end fashion brands in North America. And so again, if we understand why certain images sell better, that insight is worth something. And so it's very much an analytics group, but very much a focus on gaining insights into the why. That's pretty much what we focus on. And in terms of what do we need? What do we want to do? Obviously, expansion and capital is always a challenge. And so I think we'll be looking to probably raise more capital um, in the coming um, years and, and, and if not months. And so... You know, we have an aggressive expansion plan and we'd very much like to execute that. Excellent. Well, that's been extremely clear and it is nice once in a while to superset fintech by going into tech as a whole. Um, and I can see the fact that you're involved uh, at a high level in, in, in a business that owns several creative businesses gives you quite a tilt in the creative direction. And certainly 10 years ago in fintech and perhaps five years ago in fintech, there's a lot of emphasis on creativity, and there still is, of course. But now, if I'm massively to generalise about London or even the whole world, there is much more of a just let's build bigger BMW factories and let's build them in different countries. And it's more there's, you know, that stage of the, the growth curve rather than the creativity. So it's interesting hearing this point. And I think the one that will stick in my mind very much is your example of shortening sales cycles and uh, and all this kind of thing. And going back to when I did my startup in the, the late 90s, early noughties, I knew myself as the person who did the software and the person who did the consultancy and the person who also had to sort out the legally stuff, that the legally stuff can, at a minimum, be something which incredibly slows the whole thing down and can even stop it because people are worried about all this or that or, you know. So I think that the squaring the circle 
uh, works out very well and I shall definitely keep in my mind the idea of mentioning to the various founders I mentor off and on that some of them should be actually thinking about having a CLO at the appropriate stage. So thank you very much for that, Harj, and I wish you and the Live Group every success in the future. Thanks, Mike. It's been a pleasure. Thank you. Thanks for listening. If you are in need of a non-executive or advisory director with deep expertise, experience and contacts in the worlds of both traditional FS and fintech, or unique insight into how to make your board an engine of growth today, contact me at mike at mikeballiman.com. If you just need one-off advice in these areas via clarity.fm slash mikeballiman. Watching the firelight dance, watching the firelight dance. We could walk in the mountains before dawn. Watching a happy moon ride, watching a happy moon ride. Come away from the city With the tarmac so dead And the people so sad Come away from the city With the faces so grey Mountains and the trees Can you see what I mean? Can you see what I mean? We fit in between the earth and the sky Kiss the city goodbye Wave the city goodbye Wave the city goodbye City goodbye. Watch the firelight dance with me. 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 Watch the firelight dance.